Navy will probably recognize uh, some of the things about uh, having a dad as a boatswain's mate and as a chief petty officer, so uh, you can imagine that. Um, he was assigned to an Army post in uh, Albuquerque, um, where I was born. He was learning atomic weapons uh, shortly, uh, well, several years after World War II, but uh, he, was, he was learning atomic weapons and, uh, and learning how to arm those things and all that sort of stuff. And he learned that in New Mexico, and that's where I was born. And then we wound up living coast to coast a couple of years in Guantanamo Bay before it became a prison. And, uh, and so I've, I've gotten to travel a little bit uh, because of my dad's uh, occupation, vocation in the Navy. Uh, but I wanted, to ta- I wanted to begin tonight thinking about the book of Exodus, uh, thinking about the traveling aspect of it. Now, <clears throat> I did travel a little bit uh, Navy-wise or because of my dad, some international travel. But um, as... as uh, as an adult, I've been able to travel a little bit internationally. Um, and uh, have, have many of you traveled uh, international? Of course you have. Uh, some others. What, what are some places you've been? <laughs> you stole my joke. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, where? Brazil. Okay. Some France. You've been to Guantanamo? Were you in the Navy or the Marine Corps? Okay. Were you there two years? We were there. Testing, testing. Is that, is that better? Can you hear me? Okay, so you were there two years, two and a half? Um, that was my favorite place that we lived. Um, and, and it sounds funny, but I was a kid. And, um, and for the kids, it was, it was like this giant playground. And, and the adults didn't really like it because they were kind of stuck on this little spot. But the kids, we got free bus rides all over the base, and we could go to free movies and all kinds of stuff. You remember the outdoor movies? Um, and, and anyway, so we got to do some of that. But as an adult, one of my fears whenever I travel internationally, I've been to Israel three times, been to Africa once, and, uh, and, and I, I don't know about you guys that, that travel internationally, but I, I wear one of those passport necklaces <laughs> to make sure I don't lose that thing. And I tuck it inside my shirt and, and all that, <clears throat> and, I, and I've got it, and I know where it is at all times. Because, um, you remember the story, The Terminal, uh, the, the movie The Terminal, Steven Spielberg did a few years ago? It's based on a true story. There's a guy stuck in an in a airport terminal in, in Spielberg's movie. I think it was for a year or so. And he got stuck. But it was based on the life story of a fellow named Maran Karami Nasari. He was from Iran. He uh, protested in his country. And uh, he got imprisoned. Then he got expelled from the country. And he got some refugee credentials uh, while he was in France. But they were stolen. His briefcase was stolen, so he lost his credentials. And so he went to the airport to, in, in Paris, and he tried to get on a plane to go to Great Britain. And he didn't have a passport or any kind of credentials, so he couldn't get on. And he also didn't have any country to go back to. <laughs> so he was stuck at the airport, and I think, if I remember the story right, it was about 16 years that he was stuck in this airport. Now, you can imagine how difficult that would have been. Uh, He said, here is not life 
It's just staying like a passenger waiting for departure. When Israel was in Egypt, that's kind of their story. Uh, they became slaves in Egypt, and, and it wasn't that great of a life. You can imagine what slavery would have been like, especially as the story unfolds in the book of Exodus, and it gets tougher and tougher and tougher on the Hebrews. You can imagine the difficulties that they were facing, and it's just not a fun life. And they are, because God has a plan, they are passengers waiting to leave Egypt, is what, what it amounts to. And so they're there and they're living for a time and God has a vision to turn these people into warriors who would be guided by His Word and who would go forward unafraid to combat the enemies that were in the land that they would be, uh, they would be headed for and who would be uh, hungry for the right things from God. Well, those are things that God wants for us as we think about the world in which we live, God is, is anxious for us to be His spiritual warriors in a world that is going against Him. And have you felt the shift? Have you felt uh, over the years, you know, I grew up, um, I didn't attend church growing up. My parents had bad experiences as teenagers going to church, so when they left home and they got married, uh, they didn't go to church. And when they started having kids, they didn't go back to church. So as we grew up, we had very little church experience. Uh, I was converted halfway through college when I was about 19 and uh, decided to go into ministry. So I left the state school in Tampa, Florida, and I went to Fried Hardeman and began uh, the process of, of learning Bible and, and, and ministry and things. But I did learn some Bible as a kid. I learned Psalm 23, Psalm 100, the Lord's Prayer, and a few other things in public school. Okay. Some of you did too. But that's almost a joke now, isn't it? We, we, we almost laugh at that, that those days because you can't do it now. You can't pray in school most places. You can't pray in school. You can't study the Bible uh, and, and somebody's going to be offended, and, and, and we feel the shift from those days to where we are today, and it's not pleasant. And we are feeling, I don't know how you feel, I feel kind of trapped. Well, God isn't the God of the trapped. God is going to let us loose. God is going to give us freedom in Christ that, that we can appreciate and that we can be His people in this place. When Marty called me... I. He said, uh, you know, pick your favorite book. Now, I don't know if you guys have a favorite book of the Bible or not, and, and depending on my mood, I can have different favorite books. Um, I, I actually thought about the book of Leviticus, um, and, and I thought, well, I just thought you probably wouldn't come. <laughs> so so I, I went ahead and, and I said, well, Exodus. And Exod the reason I chose Exodus is because the story of the Exodus is probably the second most important story in the Bible. Number one story, of course, is the cross, the, the, the resurrection, everything wrapped around the gospel. But the story of the Exodus is the story that really supports what happens all those years later when Jesus comes. And new converts can really benefit 
and young adults, young children, or, or children, can benefit from understanding this Exodus story because there's so many parallels to what they did as to what we're going through. And just the fact that our culture has shifted like it has is just one more picture of what, what it's like in the book of Exodus as we feel it today in our time. So the book of Exodus becomes a very significant story on a lot of levels. And, and so tonight, and I don't know how far we're going to get, so I didn't do PowerPoint because there's probably a thousand po- uh, slides that I would have needed to have made, and, uh, and, and I don't know how far we're going to get, but I have three main things that I want us to think about from the book of Exodus. The first aspect of the book of Exodus is the story of redemption. The second is the story of revelation. Uh, and the third is remembrance. So, uh, th- so there, those three things, and there are more, obviously, many more things that we could pull out of the book of Exodus. <clears throat> but those three things I want us to kind of just at least think about as we uh, get into the, to the story of the Exodus. And so let's begin by thinking about the redemption part of, of the story of Exodus. And we're going to begin... and. Uh, We'll just open to Exodus chapter 1, and we're, and we're probably, yeah, we've got to do this. Uh, there, there's two or three things right there in the first chapter we've got to look at. But, but, uh, but as you think about the redemption story of this, God will preserve the nation of Israel. And that goes back to the promise that he makes to Abraham. When Abraham is called by God, he's going to send him to a land that he would show him. And that winds up being the, the land of Canaan, that promised land where years later the descendants of Abraham would have as their homeland. Now, God tells the Hebrews on more than one occasion that this land is mine. I'm letting you live here, and as long as you're faithful, you can stay. So it it's, it's not, doesn't physically uh, uh, belong to the Hebrews as, as we think about it. It's God's. And, by the way, everything else is too. And so we are stewards of the land that we live in and the place that we live. And all the things that you and I might think about in our world, we are stewards of the things of God. So whatever it is you think you own, it really belongs to God. And we're just getting to borrow it for a while, so we need to take good care of it, whatever it might be. Same is true with the Hebrews when they went into the land of promise. So God makes this promise to Abraham, tells them that through the descendants, Isaac particularly, this, the nation will come and they will dwell in the land. And, and you remember the story. You go back to the story of <clears throat> Isaac and uh, uh, rather Jacob and his sons and how Joseph uh, goes ahead of the family and they go into Egypt or he goes into Egypt and later the family comes into Egypt and the nation is preserved in Egypt. And then they will come out under the leadership of Moses. So you've got all those years in Egypt and you get some significant things going on as a result. And, and you remember in Joseph's story <clears throat> that Joseph is the key player because he has the visions and the dreams and so on, and he winds up understanding that there's going to be seven years of plenty and seven years of famine, and he rises in Pharaoh's court, and he becomes the number two guy in all of Egypt. He only is accountable to, to Pharaoh. And so he's in charge, and eventually the family comes down. He gets them to the spot in Goshen where they have this prime place. But then there's a Pharaoh that comes to power that doesn't know this covenant, doesn't know this agreement that he had with the previous Pharaoh. And so the Hebrews become a threat to Pharaoh, and, uh, and then there are some, uh, 
some difficulties that come. You notice in uh, chapter 1 that... uh, That the, uh, look at verse 15. The, the Hebrew babies become a threat, particularly the boys. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other Puah, when you uh, serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. If it is a, a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? Let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and are, and are delivered before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now there are some ironies that that go throughout the book, and one of the ironies of this book is right here in the beginning. What's Pharaoh's name? We don't know. Uh, But we know the names of the midwives. How about that? Uh, We don't know lots of things. But here these two women stand out as midwives and they actually deceive Pharaoh to preserve life. And so God deals well with these women and blesses them in a significant way. And then think about it. You've got not only in the story as it unfolds, you not only have these midwives who are not killing the baby boys, you have Moses' mother and Moses' sister and Pharaoh's daughter who all wind up saving the life of Moses. Women are the heroes in the early part of the story. Now, you know in Middle Eastern culture today that women don't have that high of a position. Even biblically, there are a lot of times that women were not put in equal positions with men. Paul might say there's neither Jew nor Greek, bond or free, male nor female, but in reality, that... that, uh, inequality was significant through the scriptures. In fact, in the first century, a woman was not permitted in a Jewish court, was not permitted to be a witness. They just, I don't know all the reasons, but women were not allowed in into a court setting to be a witness to any incident that went on. But think about it. When Jesus is crucified, who's with him? Well, John is. Who else? Big brave Peter? No. Peter's run away, denied Jesus three times. All the other big strong uh, fishermen that, that, uh, that could probably brawl with the best of them, they're not there. It's the women. And on the first day of the week, who goes to the tomb first? The women. And who is it that recognizes Jesus is not in the grave? It's the women. And who is it that Jesus appears to first? It's the women. So one of the great ironies in the scripture is that God oftentimes goes against the cultural norms. He goes against and does things that that people would not expect. You wouldn't expect him to have have, uh, had women witness his resurrection first. They would have been discounted in a court setting. But he did it anyway. 
And so even here in the story of the Exodus, it is, it is the women who are ironically in so many ways being the, the heroes of the story. And then we, uh, as, the, as, as Moses grows up in Pharaoh's court and Moses um, rises to prominence in Egypt and so on, uh, he eventually jumps ahead of God. And you remember that story. You remember how he kills the taskmaster and, uh, and, and uh, then comes to the Hebrew people and he wants to lead them out. And they say, what are you going to do, kill us too? And he, he then gets afraid. And he runs to Midian and he hides in the deserts of Midian for 40 years. Uh, inevitably, as we talk about Moses, somebody asks, do you think Moses knew? Do you think he understood his role? his position as a person of authority with uh, leading the Hebrews out? Stephen says yes. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen in his great sermon speaks about Moses and he says, he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. Moses understood, but they didn't understand. And Moses didn't wait on God. Moses recognizes the oppression, we got to get out of here, let's go, and, uh, and then he winds up running for his life, and he lives in Midian for 40 years shepherding sheep. Now, his father-in-law is Jethro, and there's an interesting quote in Exodus 18. If you want to flip over to 18, um, <clears throat> Exodus 18, verse 10. Jethro said... Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh. Verse 11, Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because He delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians when they dealt arrogantly with them. The psalmist quotes Jethro in Psalm 135. It's very interesting. The psalmist says, I know the Lord is great and the Lord is above all gods. What Jethro says here in Exodus 18. So Jethro starts understanding. I don't know if he understood from the beginning. I don't understand all that relationship. But somehow in Midian, Jethro in, in his relationship with Moses understands the true and the living God. And, and Moses lives there for 40 years. So he's 40 years in Egypt. And then he's 40 years in Midian. And God is protecting him during this time because he's going to be the guy that leads them out. And so now at about 80 years of age, Moses is now ready to go into Egypt and to take the children of Israel out and to lead them to the promised land. And there's some interesting, as you know, most, as you, as you know this story, there's so many things that, that tie into this. But at 80 years of age, Moses is going to be the great leader of the people. And we're going to go back to chapter 5 in just a minute if you want to flip back. But I want to point out something about Moses. Moses was a great man. If you talk to Jewish people and you ask them about Moses, they're going to, they're going to admire Moses, and, and they should, we should. Moses was a, a, a great man on a lot of levels and did a lot of, of, of important things. But you know he was flawed, that he wasn't perfect, that he had some problems. Uh, he uh, strikes the rock, you remember, instead of speaking to the rock, way on into the story, and as a result of that, he is not allowed to go into the promised land. Um, there's another flaw, I think, that Moses uh, demonstrates 
when God talks to him about destroying the people. Remember the people build the golden calf and God says, well, I'm going to, to destroy them and we're going to raise up a nation out of you. <clears throat> and, and by the way, that would have been perfectly biblical. Uh, Moses was a descendant of Abraham. God could have raised up an entire nation through Moses, tying back to Abraham, and God could have kept the covenant with Abraham through Moses. But you remember what Moses does. He's, he goes to God and he says, Oh no, don't do that. And he starts giving God reasons why God shouldn't do what God wanted to do. Have you ever, have you ever, <laughs> have you ever had a prayer and, and you ask God for something, and you got it, and then later you said, wow, I wish I hadn't had that. I wish I didn't get that. I think sometimes in order to discipline us or in order to help us grow in maturity, God gives us what we ask for. Uh, <clears throat> remember the story <clears throat> of the uh, Hebrews wanting meat in the wilderness? I I'm tired of, of eating manna. Manna in the morning, manna you know, at noon, all day long we're eating manna. We're tired of manna. We want meat. We had meat back in Egypt. We could have fish and onions and cucumbers and all kinds of neat stuff, but <clears throat> we'd like meat. Do you ever wonder why they didn't butcher some of their sheep or cows? or They start complaining to God. God says, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. You guys want meat? I'm going to give you meat. In fact, I'm going to give you so much quail it is going to come out your nose. And they get quail and quail and quail, and they get tired of eating quail. And they, it just made them, you know, and you, you know that. I, I used to, <clears throat> used to, beginning of the summer, you know, I want watermelon. So I get the watermelon, and I start eating watermelon, and by a couple weeks into that, I'm kind of tired of watermelon. But I've waited for it all year. Other things, you know, you know how it goes. Well, I kind of wonder about Moses, and I don't know this for sure, but I wonder. God says, here's what I want to do. I want to destroy this nation. I want to raise a nation from you. Moses says, no, 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 don't do that. Here's all the reasons why. The world's going to think you're a bad God and so on if, if you do this. <clears throat> God says, okay, we'll do it your way. How many times does Moses nearly have a nervous breakdown? All oh, these stiff-necked people, they're criticizing and complaining all the time and there are people rising up against me and God says, it's what you wanted. Yeah, it was. <laughs> but I don't like it. <laughs> no. In fact, he gets so angry he strikes the rock instead of speaks to the rock. Look what we did for you, he says to the people. Someone pointed out to me <clears throat> that when Moses takes the children, finally takes the children of Israel up to the border, uh, up to the, to the Jordan River. And, uh, and under the leadership of Joshua, they will go in through the Jordan River and into the land of Canaan. Moses gets to see that up on Mount Nebo. Now, I've not been to Mount Nebo <clears throat> in my trips to Israel. I've been on the Israel side, and that's on the Jordan side. But I've seen the mountain. Okay, and up there on that mountain somewhere, Moses watched as the children of Israel went into the promised land. Remember what happens? Moses dies on Mount Nebo and God buries Moses. Now I've always thought that the reason God buried Moses, and we don't know where the burial place is, 
was so that we wouldn't worship the grave of Moses. Because you know that's what we do. Uh, I have been in Jerusalem <clears throat> to uh, one of the places where they think Jesus um, may have been embalmed. Uh, there's, a, there's a big stone in the, uh, the, the church there, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre there, and there's a big stone, and um, you can actually take your fingers and, and touch that stone, and you can smell the uh, oils and things that have been used to embalm bodies on that stone. And of course, it, if, if they did that, that has to be the stone where Jesus was embalmed, or where they put the, the, the spices on Jesus, has to be. But <clears throat> wherever it was, whatever it was, but you can watch people go to that stone, and it's like they're worshiping this stone. It's, it's a little eerie. Uh, but you know that's what we do. If, if we knew where the grave of Moses was, if there's a big marker up there and they said Moses is buried right here, that would be a place, you know, somebody would build a church over it and there'd be all kinds of worship going on of that thing, that, that grave. But another thing <clears throat> that someone pointed out to me, you remember how when, when Joseph dies and Jacob and Joseph die in Egypt, their bones are brought back to Israel, back to the land? Uh, when, you, when, I, when, when you leave, take my bones with you, take my body with you, and bury me back in, in Israel, back in, in the land of promise. So they do. They carry those bodies back. Uh, I've been to Hebron, to the place where uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are buried in the cave of Machpelah. Abraham buys that cave when Sarah dies, and they, she's buried there. Later, Abraham's buried there, and then Isaac and their spouses and, and Jacob and so on, all buried there, haven't seen the graves, been at the top for the, the memorial things about it, uh, but, but the bones are brought back. Who Can't bring Moses' bones back. Uh, evidently, God was so frustrated with Moses that he wasn't even going to let his body be brought back, brought into the land of promise to be buried there. God buried him up on Mount Nebo. Now, Moses, obviously, is a great man in a lot of, a lot of ways. But Moses, Moses uh, had his flaws. David has his flaws. Abraham has his flaws. Now, there's a good lesson for us. You and I are not perfect on our own. Jesus takes away our sin. Jesus gives us righteousness and all those things. And when God looks at you, he looks through the... Through the uh, the glasses through the lenses of Jesus and he sees Jesus when he sees you because of all the things that God has done in Christ for you. But you know your flaws. You know your shortcomings or some of them. And uh, here's a great lesson for us. You can be an Abraham. You can be a Moses. You can be a David. You can be a Sarah. You can be a one of the great heroes of the Bible. They had their imperfections, but God worked with them and raised them up, helped them grow in their relationship with God in such a way that they became movers and shakers and leaders among the people of God. You and I can be that. You and I can have a relationship with God where we grow from where we are into great people of God, just like you read about in the Scriptures. And I think that's a real important lesson for us because... A lot of times we get down on ourselves and we think we're substandard. And the truth is God's working with us. God's lifting us up. God's making us better and better every day that we walk with him. And so Moses is a good example on a lot of levels for us. 
But as in chapter 5, let's, let's skip on. In chapter 5, God begins talking about His deliverance of the people. The end of 5, starting at verse 22. Um, Moses turned again to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Remember, he comes and the taskmasters start uh, really... Moses comes back to Egypt from Midian and the taskmasters and, and the Pharaoh are pretty upset with the Hebrews and they start taking away the straw and, and they can't make the bricks with straw and so on. And so Moses starts blaming God. Why have you been evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. You're going to deliver us and you haven't. I came back just like, remember in Exodus 3, we'll talk about this in a few minutes maybe, uh, the burning bush story, God calls him from the burning bush and he says, I'm going to send you into Egypt and you're going to bring your people out. Well, I'm back and nothing's happened. But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out. Yea, with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. And God said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob as God Almighty, but my name, the Lord. And if your Bible has it, Lord should be in all capital letters there. That's the personal name of God. We don't know how to say that name. Uh, at the burning bush, whom, whom shall I say has sent me? I am that I am. Okay, that name, whenever it comes up, it is, uh, it is four letters in Hebrew, the Yod or Y, the, uh, the hey or the H and a V or a W, um, uh, Bav, and then another hey. So, so those four letters, and we don't have the vowels, so we don't know how to pronounce the name. Hebrew people won't pronounce or even try to pronounce, Jewish people won't even try to pronounce the name, but they will say the Lord. And so a lot of the, tra- a lot of the Bible translators, when the name of God appears, rather than try to translate the name, they put Lord in all capital letters. So, so here he says, I appeared to Jacob as God Almighty, but my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they dwelt as sojourners. Moreover, I've heard the groanings of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from their bondage. I will redeem you with outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And I will take you for my people. I will be your God. You shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, to Jacob. And I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and the cruel bondage. God sends Moses to the people to declare to them their deliverance, and yet they're not going to listen. And as we go on through into the next few chapters, you remember the story of the plagues and how the, the, all the different plagues come, and ultimately the, first, the death of the firstborn sends the Hebrews out of Egypt and on their way to the land of promise. Now, one of the things you probably know already, but I just need to repeat it, is that this is a battle of the gods. And, and, and what you have going on here is the declaration that the Lord is the God, and He is greater than all the little g-gods of Egypt. And so you have the frog god and you have the various gods 
that, uh, that the Egyptians worshipped. And God says through these plagues, I'm the one. I'm the true God. I'm the powerful God. I'm the, the, the creator God and, and so on. And so in all of this, there is that, that spiritual war going on and God is declaring himself in each case up to the 10th plague. And finally, that's the ultimate. And the, and the Egyptians say, get out. Pharaoh drives them out, just like God had said. We live in a world where there are little G gods fighting against the big God, our God. And you know this. You watch it all around you. You see... The, the God of money and materialism. You see the God of immorality. You see the God of, of um, well, of power. Uh, all kinds of little G gods are going around trying to take hold of you. And this is the battle. And our God says, I'm the God. Trust me, follow me, do what I uh, direct you to do, and, and you will be victorious over these gods. Well, the death of the firstborn happens and God releases the Hebrews and they go out to, um, to the Red Sea. And, uh, and you remember in that episode that uh, they come to the Red Sea and they have to stop. There's a movie, Dunkirk, out now. A great World War II story of the English soldiers that were on the little peninsula in France. German army is coming to get them, and in order to get them off the beaches, the British send ships and boats and everything that floated to go over and get those guys and bring them off. I haven't seen the movie yet. I don't know much about it, <clears throat> um, but uh, I know the, the Dunkirk story. But I imagine what would it be like to be one of those soldiers on that beach, and you know the German army's coming. Let me ask you a question. If that had been you, and it looked like you've got the uh, English Channel on one side and the German army on the other side, how much sleep are you going to get? I doubt, you, I doubt you kick back in the sleeping bag and just relax. You're probably on edge. The Germans could come over the hill any minute. Ships aren't there. What are we going to do? I kind of think that's the way the Hebrews were feeling. We're at the Red Sea. we got nowhere to go. The Egyptians have changed their mind. They're coming after us. God, remember, puts up the pillar of, of, of uh, fire and so on and stops them. And all night long, Moses has got his hands up and the sea is parting and the wind is blowing and the Hebrews are on the shore waiting, not sure what's going on. That's called the night of watching to the Hebrew people. When they left Egypt with the death of the firstborn. You remember how they escaped that plague. They killed the lamb. They put the lamb's blood on the doorpost. God passes over those houses with the blood. And then those houses do not have death of the firstborn in them. But the Egyptians don't have that. And in every household in Egypt, the firstborn dies. And so Pharaoh says, leave. But now they're changing their mind. That Passover feast continues to today. Jewish people through generations remember this Exodus story. They take a, an evening or maybe sometimes more than one. They'll have more than one Passover meal. And they, they eat together and they 
drink the four cups of wine and they eat the unleavened bread and the, the bitter herbs and the salt water and all those things and they talk to their children about what happened, how we got out of Egypt. And so they, they bring all that up. <clears throat> but there is a night of watching that also is associated with the Passover meal. Um, that was this night when they're at the Red Sea. And so they watch and then generations later when they participate in the Passover meal, if they're really serious about it, they'll stay up all night in the night of watching to kind of redo, reenact what was going on at the Red Sea. Do you remember the night Jesus is arrested? He goes to Gethsemane. Some of the guys go off to sleep and he takes Peter, James, and John with him and they go over and they, and they uh, get together and Jesus says, you wait here, I'm going to go there and pray. You're kidding. <laughs> Sorry. I'm going to go pray and, and what happens? Those guys fall asleep. And Jesus says, couldn't you watch even one hour? This is the night of watching, guys. Couldn't you watch? And so Jesus uh, kind of reminds them of all that going on in the, uh, the night of watching. Well, I've got to tell you this, and then I'm going I'm to buzz through a couple of things. We've got like four minutes. Um, when they get to the Red Sea, Red Sea parts, the Hebrews go through, and you remember what happens with Pharaoh's army. They go in after water closes over them, the armies drown. The rabbis have an expression called measure for measure. We, we would call it sowing and reaping. And there are some New Age people that would call it karma. And it's the getting what you give. And that works in positive ways and it works in negative ways. If you give good things, you receive good things according to God. So, for instance, in, in financial giving, if you're generous with your giving to God, God's generous in, your, in His giving to you. Uh, if you're stingy, God's stingy. So you get back what you give, sowing and reaping, measure for measure. Going back to the early days of the story, you remember what was going to happen to those Hebrew boys. Uh, if they weren't killed in the birthing room, they were to be thrown into the Nile River. They would be drowned and the crocodiles would eat them. What happens to Pharaoh and his army? The same thing they were giving, they received, measure for measure. So here's another, I think, important principle, um, and, it, and it plays out in a number of, of uh, places throughout the Scripture. There's something really cool I want to I want to mention near the end end of the lesson. Let me see if I can find it real quick. Um, ah, there's so many things. Um, you remember in the uh, yeah in the Ark of the Covenant when, when God told them about building the tabernacle and so on. Remember, part of the furniture in the, in the uh, tabernacle was the Ark of the Covenant. Ark was a box, and it was so big, it wasn't, a very, it wasn't an enormous box. But you remember on that box, it was overlaid with gold and so on, and there were two angels, two cherubim, on top of that box. 
Only people that could mess with the box, touch the box, the ark, were the priests. And then they would have to use poles to carry the ark and, and so on. And it was, a, it was a big deal. But you have these two cherubim on, on top of the ark. And in Exodus 25, he says, The cherubim will face each other and look down on the atonement cover. So in the Ark of the Covenant, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would, would kill the animals, take the blood, and he would sprinkle the, uh, the blood on the Ark of the Covenant for his sins and for the sins of the nation. And every year he had this, this ceremony that he repeated, and the sins of the people were covered. That's the word atonement. In Hebrew it is Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. Kippur means covering. It's a day of covering. So when they, they went into the, the Ark of the Covenant, the, the sins of the people are covered. Now, let me give you a, a, a roll it forward, if you will. And if you want to look in John uh, chapter 20, I'm going to read it to you. And you, you can look at it or, or look at it later. But John 20, verses 11 through 13. Mary was standing outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she stu- stooped and looked in. She saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head, and the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus was lying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angels asked her. Because they've taken away my Lord, she replied. I don't know where they have put him. Now, I don't know if God did this on purpose. I suspect he did. But they're carrying around the Ark of the Covenant. Two angels are on top of that Ark. You roll it forward to the day that Jesus is resurrected, and two angels are sitting in the tomb, one at one end of the place where he lay, one at the other. And there's a picture that the Hebrews have been carrying around all those years as they carried the Ark of the Covenant. There's an empty tomb coming, and those angels are going to be in that tomb, and people are going to look in and see the angels, and they're going to interact with those angels. And there's thousands of other things that we should be covering tonight, but that's as far as we're going to go. (laughs) So thank you very much for your attention, for the opportunity to come and be with you tonight. So um, uh, I'm going to (laughs) quit. Thank you. (laughs)